But again, it's good to see everybody this morning. We're, uh, we're still in the book of Psalms. This is like our sixth sermon in the book of Psalms. So if you would like to, in your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 51. Now, this is kind of a, a tough psalm. So we want to pray for ourselves before we get into it, that our hearts can be uh, tender to receive what God would have to speak to us this morning. Amen. Sometimes the word of God, it challenges us and it corrects us. And the Bible says about itself that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So sometimes when the word of God comes in, it cuts. But the beautiful thing about the word of God is, is that when it cuts, it also heals. Amen. So we're going to allow it to cut this morning, but we're also going to pray that it heals. I want you just, before we jump into it this morning, why don't you just uh, put your hand on your heart there. We're going to pray for ourselves that we can receive what the Lord would have for us. Father, this morning we just come into your presence. And God, you know every need. Lord, there's people that have been dealing with difficulties. They have been in valleys. They've dealt with sickness. They've dealt with fear and worry and anxiety. But Jesus, you're here right now. You're in our midst. And Holy Spirit, you're moving from person to person to bring peace, to bring comfort. Lord, to set their minds right and at ease, God, and just to remind them that, Lord Jesus, you are on the throne. And even when the enemy attacks us, God, the things that he means for evil, God, you're able to turn them for good. And so I believe that, Lord, right now. We pray that over each and every person, God, that the things that the enemy is bringing against each person, God, you're going to turn these things for good. Lord, you're bringing healing into our minds, into our bodies, Lord, into our souls. And so we receive that this morning. And God, we pray, Lord, that we would have hearts this morning to understand and to receive your word, that it would produce fruit in our lives. And we thank you for it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in a lot of Psalms, and they've been pretty good. We've, we've been through Psalm 23, 91, 119, 34. And last week we did one where we, uh, we just looked at Jesus in the Psalms, and that was a lot of fun. But specifically this morning, we're going to hang out in Psalm 51. And the thing that we've been talking about about the Psalms is, is the Psalms were the, they were the songbook of the early church. And the early church, if you read the disciples, we talked about how even in the New Testament, the Psalms are actually quoted 116 times. And Jesus himself quoted the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. And so they used the Psalms to build their theology about who God was and how they believed in God. They used the Psalms to teach them about Christ and about who Jesus was. And Jesus used the Psalms to teach the relig religious leaders about who he was. And they used it as their songbook. Now, when you go into the Psalms, and we've talked about this. We talked about Psalm 88. Now, if you read that Psalm, it's like the worst thing ever in the world to read. It's like, God, you've forsaken me. You've let me down. You put me in a pit. I'm in darkness. My friends have left me and forsaken me. Nothing good is going on and everything is bad. And then it comes to an end with no resolution. And the beautiful thing about the Psalms is, is you can go at any time into the Psalms and you can find the state of mind that you are in. You can find your condition, whether it be uh, uh, one of desperation or sorrow or sadness or brokenness or loss or praise and joy and happiness and rejoicing at what God has done. You can find your situation in the Psalms and God has given it to us to teach us how to pray. And he's given it to us so that our affections can be shaped and molded and teach us how to relate to God when we're going through different situations and circumstances in life. Now, this specific Psalm, Psalm 51, it's kind of a difficult one because this this psalm deals with how Christians relate to sin and guilt in their lives. Amen. 
Sin and guilt in their lives because we have to deal with that. Now, let me, let me say this. A Christian is not a Christian because they don't sin or because they don't ever have guilt or any of those things. A Christian is a Christian because of how they relate to Jesus in the midst of their sin and guilt. And that's what Psalm 51 is about, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's get a little bit of background, though. In Psalm 51, the introduction, I love it when you read the Psalms and it gives you some introduction. That way you can go back and check out what it's actually trying to teach you. But the introduction in my Bible says this. It says, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So basically he's saying this Psalm 51 was written by David, directly after Nathan the prophet had been sent to him to give him a message after he had committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. So let's get a little bit of perspective and we, got, we can go to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's look at the first verse in chapter 11. It says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. The thing I want you to notice is the, is the first and the last line of this, of this verse. And it says, it happened in the spring of the year. At the, time, at the time when kings go out to battle, where was David? It says at the end, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now you're going to read this verse and it opens what's going to be one of the greatest falls in all of Scripture. It's a sad situation what we're about to read. But it starts like this and it gives us a preface. It's saying, look, at the time when kings are supposed to be going to war and being in battle, David chooses to remain at Jerusalem. Now I need you to understand this and I understand this even as a Christian. It's sometimes on Sundays after I feel like maybe I've won a victory or maybe even lost a battle. But sometimes whenever it is, I'm supposed to be the most aware that I begin to relax, I begin to take a step back and begin to take my ease, that all of a sudden temptation begins to lurk and it begins to slip in at those moments when we are supposed to be engaged in the battle. And right now in our Christian lives more than any time ever probably, Probably. I mean, the battle is increasing more and more. And I think sometimes the church and even us as Christians, we fail to discern that our spiritual life is a battle. And right now we are in the heat of the battle. And whenever we begin to pull ourselves from the battle and say, you know what, we can take our ease now. We're in a comfortable position. Everything seems to be going pretty well. We're maintaining. We're doing okay. That is when all of a sudden temptation and distraction begin to sneak in and find its way in. Because, folks, we are in a battle. We're in a battle for our families. We're in a battle for our community and our spiritual lives. We are in a battle for our nation. We're in a spiritual battle as Christians because Satan is not going to give up in these last days. He's going to put you to the test. He's going to challenge you. And he is trying to take as much ground as he can by any means possible in order to destroy the image of God in human beings. And our goal is to make sure that every human being on this planet knows the name of Jesus and is turned to him in salvation. Amen. But see, we, gotta have, we have to discern that. And because he said, you know what, I'm the king now. Everything's going well. I won't go out to battle. I'm just going to remain at Jerusalem. All of a sudden, in his idleness, sometimes when you're idle, when you're not doing anything, is the time that Satan loves to slip in. And you guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you're active, when you're pursuing God, when you're going after God, it seems like everything seems to be going a little bit more smoothly. And even, even when you do have challenges, it's like you can respond to them more effectively. But when you are always in reaction to what's going on, you begin to lose the battle, you begin to slip. And here's what it says when this temptation slips in verse 2. It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed 
and walked on the roof of the king's house. So he ain't doing nothing. He's just lounging around while everybody else is going to war. He's lounging around, going on the roof. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For, he, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, my first question is, what in the world is David doing walking around on the rooftop? And my second question is, what is Bathsheba doing bathing in sight of the rooftop? Now, this goes without saying, but honestly, here's what I've come to understand in a lot of counseling with different people and understanding how humans work, understanding how me, myself works, and understanding what Scripture says about these situations is that when you're dealing with temptation and you're dealing with sin, especially when it pertains to sexual sin, see, the Scripture actually says that you're not supposed to flirt with it or entertain it because what happens is people say, well, I'm not going to sin, but because I kind of like it a little bit, I'll flirt with it a little bit. I'll entertain the idea of this thing. And the Scripture says not to do that. Matter of fact, it says flee sexual immorality. I had a young woman one time tell me we were having a conversation about sexual purity and we were in a group setting and this young woman said, you know what, Clay, I'd trust you in a room full of women. I said, well, I wouldn't. I said, you better not go trusting me with anything like that. I said, the Bible says to make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Make no provision for the lust of flesh because even though the Holy Spirit of God lives in me and I believe He's able to keep me and he, I believe that He's able to, to lead me not into temptation, at the end of the day, I still have flesh that I've got to keep on the cross and keep it crucified. And just because I'm a pastor or just because you've been a good Christian for 30 years does not mean that Satan cannot attack you and come against you and you are to flee sexual immorality. Not flirt with it, not kind of look at it a little bit, not touch it a little bit, or maybe even begin to, not, you, you don't flirt with it. He says, when you see the opportunity that this thing could creep in, you run from it. You flee from it and make no provision, take no forethought. See, I imagine that David was thinking to himself as he got up from his bed that morning, he was not thinking, you know what, I'm going to go commit adultery with another man's wife. I doubt very seriously that was what was in his thoughts. His thoughts was, if I go up on that rooftop, Bathsheba may be over there bathing, you know what I'm talking about? And I'll just look, I'll just give it a peek, it'll be all right. And so he goes up to the rooftop, and by the time that he looks, see, which Jesus says that a man, you know, he said, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but he says that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. See, Jesus is getting down to the root of the issue. He's saying, really, at the end of the day, when you begin to conceive these things in your heart, the road is going to lead to adultery regardless. And it's not the issue of you committing the act. It's the issue of what's going on in, inside of your heart. And for every young man that reads this verse, it's the most devastating verse in the world when you're a middle schooler or a high schooler. Amen. But nevertheless, it is in Scripture, and we got to deal with it. we got to work through it. So he says this. Now, here's, here's what we got to understand. What follows this act of adultery 
when he, when he sleeps with her is, is something terrible because Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. You guys remember when we were talking about Psalm 34 and after David has been run off by Saul and he's been anointed king but he's fleeing and he ends up in the cave of Adullam and 400 men come to him and he says, you know what, the, the praise of God will always be on my lips and he's beginning to sing this song before the Lord about how he delivers them out of all their troubles and these men are listening and you know that one of the men that are listening that chose to follow David and became listed as a mighty man in the scripture was Uriah the Hittite. They were brothers. They were friends. It wasn't like it was a guy that he didn't know. David knew this man. And he commits adultery with his wife and his wife gets pregnant. So you know what David does? He concocts this scheme and he says, boys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just, let's go into the mind of David for a minute. We're talking about a guy that the Bible said was a man after God's own heart. And all of a sudden, in a moment of weakness, something happens. And David says, here's what we're going to do. You, Joab, I, I want you to bring in, I'm going to send messengers. I want you to bring in Uriah the Hittite to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to let him come in. He's going to go into his wife. And then that way, when she has this child, he'll think it's his. Now I'm going to be covered. I'm going to be scot-free. Amen. Good plan. We're always good at figuring out ways to justify our sin. So he figures this out and he, he, he does this. He brings in Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah comes in and David talks to him and he says, I just wanted to bring you in to see how the battle was going. And he says, won't you just go home, rest up? And Uriah says, as surely as the Lord God lives, he says, my brothers are out there in the battle. They're sleeping in tents. He said, I'll sleep at the door of the king's house. How can I go in and lie with my wife when my men are out there in the field? Which just stuck David a little bit more, I would say. And so the next night he says, stay one more night. David said, I'm going to try one more thing. So he got him drunk. And he got Uriah drunk. And then he said, hoping, well, now if I get, he gets drunk, now I'll go into his wife. But guess what? Uriah the Hittite still stayed at the king's house. And so what does David do? Now, this is the craziest part. David says, well, I got to figure out a way to take care of this. I'm going to write a note to Joab, the captain, saying, Whenever you get into the battle, leave your eye in the front lines in the heat of the battle. And whenever you all are overwhelmed, withdraw and let them kill him right there in that battle. But what, what makes it even worse is he gives the note to Uriah. Uriah doesn't look at it. He takes it to Joab, hands his, over his own death certificate. And they do that very thing. And Joab sends word back to the king that Uriah the Hittite has been killed in battle. And his wife Bathsheba hears about it and she begins to mourn and weep. And now David can freely, in his own mind, justify his sin, take her in as his wife and her have his child. You imagine that? Listen at this situation. Listen at the covering of this sin, the justification of this sin. But the story gets better if you read it because God is not going to allow this thing to go on. And so what God does is he sends Nathan the prophet. And you imagine this old dude, you know, he's walking in. He'd been praying for like, 12 hours a day, he's one of them guys, and he just walks in, he's he kind of creaking a little bit, but he's been with God. And he, and he knows everything that's going on. God has revealed it to him, and Nathan walks into David, and he says, hey, David, let me tell you something that happened. He said, there was this rich man, and this poor man lived in the same city. He said, the rich man, he had all kinds of flocks, had everything you could imagine, and the poor man just had one little lamb. And this little lamb, he raised it from its, his birth, and it was all he had, and he was with that lamb every day. And he said, there was a man that came to the rich man and said, hey, let's, let's have a meal together. And rather than the rich man taking from his flock, he said he went to that poor man and took that poor man's little lamb and fed it to his guest. 
And David, it says his, his anger was just aroused and he was infuriated. And he said, let this man be put to death and let him restore the sheep fourfold to this man. And Nathan points at him in the face and says, you are the man. Imagine that. And all of a sudden, David, can you imagine being in that situation when all of a sudden God just exposes everything right in front of you? And see, here's, here's the thing about this is that in our generation, we think that kind of exposing is not love. Do you realize that God did that to David in his great love for David? That God did that to David because he knew that if he remained in that state of darkness, it was going to drive him into a place further and further away from God, which would ultimately spread to his children, spread to the people of Israel, and move Israel in a decline away from the worship of God because he had allowed this sin to go covered up and infect his soul. And that's what we do so often, even as Christians. There are things that we're ashamed of. There are things that we've done that, we're guilty, that we feel guilt for, but we sometimes do not understand the necessity of true repentance and coming back to God in our lives. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is what I want to teach in this lesson is that repentance is a good thing. It's got a bad name. And every time you hear the word repent, you think about a dude on the side of the road and holding up a sign saying God hates these people, God hates these people. And let me tell you something. God doesn't hate any people or he wouldn't call them to repentance. The Bible says that Jesus and all of heaven, they rejoice not because one person says I believe in Jesus, but because one sinner comes to repentance. They come and they turn to God and they say, God, my sin has separated me from what you've called me to be. It is a good thing. It is a blessing when God exposes your sin for the first time and all of a sudden he begins to call you to repentance. And I know in my own life, I don't know about you, but in my sin now here, I've had conversations with people. And the, and the, the common theme in our generation is, is that really if you're going to reach people, you never need to talk about sin. You never need to confront sin. You never need to talk about these things. And here's what I need you to understand is that if somebody did not confront sin at some point in my life, I would not be standing here before you today. And I would not be a Christian because I would have continued doing what I was doing. And before long, that sin would have kept me so far from the presence of God and the truth of God that there's no way I would have been, God would have been able to make me into what I am today. It took me getting in the scripture and seeing the word of God for itself. And you know, and there's also a big movement that says, well, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace. Yes, but you still have to understand that the scripture teaches that the law has a purpose and it is good as if it is used lawfully because without the law... There is no knowledge of sin. And you say, well, yeah, but everybody already knows what their sin is. How is it that I didn't? How is it that I could get drunk? I could get high. I could have sex outside of marriage. I could do all those things when I was a young man. And if you asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I know the Lord, but I didn't know the Lord. But when somebody, and I, I mean, I, I talked to one of my old pastors there the other day, and we were talking about, you know, he, he's one of them guys, when he preaches, son, he will bring the heat. You know what I'm talking about? Like he's going to break it down. And we were talking about his method. And I said, you know, here's the thing. I said, maybe not everybody approves of your method, but I can tell you one thing. I said, when I came to your church for the first time, you preached a message and it was directly at my behavior and it was directly at my sin. And my response was actually, I hated you pretty much, be honest with you. I didn't like what you had to say that day. I said, but here's what I can tell you is that after that day, there was a real conviction in my heart because I realized for the first time that I had broken the law of God and I was guilty. And there's something about that that now the church in today's world, is, they're missing that aspect of the fact that Jesus had to go to the cross. But see, the reason he had to go to the cross was because our sin is horrific. If we treated sin, if, let me say it this way. If God treated sin the, the way that the American church treated sin, 
Jesus would not have had to, have, had to die. Because if he treated sin the way we did, he would have just said, you know what, sin's not really that big a deal. Nobody has to die. It's all good. We'll just keep doing what you're doing. We'll cover it. I mean, that, that's, that, that's most Sunday morning services nowadays. And again, I'm not up here to get, I never want to preach a sermon where, where, where we're condemning and we're crushing people and we're giving people no hope. But man, I'm telling you, repentance is the hope. When Jesus says, look, I see, the, I see the kind of brokenness you're in. I've seen the kind of sin you're in. But I'm offering you life. You don't realize that that sin is taking you down a destructive path. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. There's only emptiness and broken there. Will you please turn to me? This is what repentance is. And you begin to find life. The best day of my life was when my sin was finally exposed and I was finally empowered to turn from it. Amen. It's not enough for me. I don't know about you, but it's not enough for me to say I'm a Christian, but live just like everybody else that's still continuing enslaved by sin. I don't want to live that way. And I, and I know you don't want to live that way either. And we've got to understand as Christians how to effectively call people to repentance. But see, this is not even about people getting saved. David knew the Lord. David knew the Lord. And there's even, there's even a, a word that's going forth today from pulpits that says, well, you know, Christians don't have to repent anymore and they don't have to confess their sins anymore. It's, it's a relational issue, folks. I'm not saying that if you fail to confess every little... If we went through a list of all of our sins in a day, it'd be, it'd be tedious work. God is not asking you to confess every single sin that you've ever committed, but He's asking you to have a relationship with you. And what would it be like if I hurt my wife and I said something terrible to her, but I said, well, you know what? I know you already forgive me, so I ain't even going to apologize for that. No, it's relational. So I will go to her and say, I know I've hurt you, honey. I didn't mean that. Please forgive me. It's the same way with the Lord. He's just asking for a relationship. He's not saying that in order to be forgiven, you have to confess every little detail of your sin. He's already paid the price for your forgiveness. But he's saying, because you are forgiven, come to me in relationship. You are forgiven. You better believe you're forgiven. His blood has paid the price. You are forgiven of your sin, but he's still saying come to me in relationship. Acknowledge what's going on in your heart and begin to move. Allow me to move in your heart in this. Proverbs 27.5. Let's look at a couple verses. Proverbs 27.5. It says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Now Nathan could have said to the Lord, Lord, it sounds like a good idea to go to David. But you know what? We might offend David and it might push him further away from you, God. So I love him and this carefully concealed love rather than giving him an open rebuke. Let's just be wise about this, God, and let's be soft with him. Let's not actually expose this sin. Anybody amen me this morning? Because we begin to believe this is what love is. But see, open rebuke sometimes is some of the best love that can be offered. Would you agree with that? Now, I'm not saying we need to go around like, like, the, like the morality police and jump on everybody. I'm talking about brothers and sisters. Look at what it says in James, James 5. It says, finally, as members of God's beloved family, we must go after the one who wanders from the truth and bring him back. Next verse. For the one who restores the sinning believer, notice this, the sinning believer, back to God from the error of his way, gives back to his soul life from the dead and covers over countless sins by their demonstration of love. 
Do you realize that it is a demonstration of the love of God when you can go to a brother or sister in their sin, realizing that you yourself, you're not bringing judgment on them because you realize you've got a plank in your eye too, that you're no better than they are, but you can say, I can see that there's a struggle here in your life and I want to be able to come alongside you and help you the same way that you can hold me accountable. Let's hold each other accountable, but this is not the way to go, brother. This is the way that's going to lead you into a place that you don't want to be. You cannot continue in this sin. You need to turn from this. And God says, this is an amazing demonstration of love whenever you can do that. You see that? We as the family of God, we go after believers that are in this condition. Now, in verse 13 and 14 of of, of 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 12, it says that David said to Nathan, finally, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, duh, David. You basically took a man's wife, essentially raped her, had her husband killed, and tried to cover that all up. Yeah, I think you might have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, notice this, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan departed from his house. Now, notice what it says here. It says, the Lord has put away your sin. First time I read this after I read the story, I thought, man, the the Lord has put away his sin? That's kind of outrageous, isn't it? If God is holy and God is just, how does he just overlook the fact that David has done this? He's killed a guy, he's committed adultery, he's done some terrible things. How does God just put away his sin? Now, I want you to understand this scripturally. In in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, notice what it says in Romans 3. If you put that up for me. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, he's saying God was, in, in David's situation, notice this, God was actually looking forward to the cross and leaving some sins unpunished because he was merciful and looking to the cross. And David, by some mystery, understood. He didn't really get it. He knew that there was going to be guilty that were punished, but he also understood that God has said he's merciful and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he knew by revelation that somehow there was a redemption coming that even though a man was guilty, his sins would not be accounted to him. He knew it. And he understood it, so he pleaded for God's mercy. In the next verse, Romans 3.25, he says he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, let me tell you what happened to David by faith the same way that it happens to you and I is that David put his faith in God's mercy the same way that we put our faith in Christ. Because I don't know about you. Somebody's been talking about Kanye West getting saved and I hope to God that he really has gotten saved and I hope to God that God uses him. But at the same time, I was, I was thinking about Kanye West because I'm this dude has been a blasphemer his whole life. You know what I'm saying? He, he, he wrote an album called Jesus. He had a picture of him hanging on the cross. That's blasphemy, folks. But then I remembered as I'm thinking about Kanye West, the Lord revealing to me, I was telling a friend about it the other day, that when I went to a party one time, I went dressed up like Jesus with a crown of thorns on my head, drinking, smoking pot, doing drugs, mocking God. But because of his mercy, because of his righteousness, Jesus took my blasphemy, he took my sexual sin, he took everything that I've ever done, he put it on that cross, and he says, now God is just to justify me because that's what he did. He took all my sin, everything that I've done, and he put it on the cross. See, my sin did not go unpunished. 
My sin was punished on the cross of Calvary, and so was your sin. Every sin. And that's the most beautiful thing in the world. This is the gospel, man. This is the gospel that every single person, no matter what they've done, they can turn to Jesus. But here's what you have to understand about the gospel is that it is not simply God has forgiven you, continue in your ways. Even Jesus himself would often say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. The gospel not only gives you forgiveness, but it provides transformation and empowerment to live a new life. See, I wasn't just forgiven of all those things. I was given a supernatural power in the Holy Spirit to begin to live a different way. And the best day of my life ever was when I finally repented of my sin and God empowered me to do it. The good news still demands repentance. See, Jesus, let me tell you this. Jesus, once and for all, by his life and death, has purchased your forgiveness and you can add nothing to that. It is received by faith. It is a gift. You can't earn this salvation by your works, but you, because of what he has done, have to appropriate it by a daily relationship with him where you receive the grace to be transformed. Amen. I want to appropriate it and apply it by prayer and confession. So now let's get to Psalm 51. Let's look at David's response. And in your notes, number one, in Psalm 51, it says... I've got there for you. He turns to God. It's very simple. Very simple. Is that when you find yourself in a difficult situation, you're discouraged based on your attitude or some kind of behavior that you've been in. I mean, we've even, there are times when we have people that, that we're, you know, they're aware that, okay, I'm living in a sinful lifestyle, but I'm having a difficulty getting out of it. Let me, I want you to understand something. No matter who comes in here, what kind of condition their heart is in, we're, we're not demanding perfection immediately. We're just telling you that the gospel ultimately brings you to a place of repentance and we're willing to walk that out with you because we're not perfect either. I've most likely been where you're at. I'm just saying that you do have to turn. We can't allow God loves you too much to allow you to stay where you're at. God loves people too much to allow them to stay where they're at. He is trying to make us like Jesus. And in Psalm 51.1, when he turns to God, this is after it has happened. Nathan has come in. God, I believe David probably goes and falls face down maybe in the tabernacle. And he begins to cry this out to God. And he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. See, David knew he was guilty but he also knew that somehow by some mysterious redemption that there was forgiveness for people like him. And the first thing that he does is he turns helpless to the mercy and love of God. And in the same way, that's what we have to do. Here's what I need you to understand, folks. There's, uh, like I said, there's, there, there's, there's something, there's a movement in the church today, like I said, that makes it seem like it is a, is a harsh thing or a heavy thing to ever discuss sin or, or that the Old Testament is bad. Do you want, you want to understand, the New Testament says that the Old Testament, for the most part, it's, it's, there's a lot in it and it's all good. But it says that the law is given to us as a schoolmaster or, or a school teacher. It's a school teacher that leads us children to Christ. And what the law does is it comes and says, hey, Clay, you're sexually immoral. You're drunkard. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're all these things. And what that does is when I try hard now to not be those things, I find out that I'm powerless to not be those things. And when I find out I'm powerless to not be those things, I fall 
broken and hopeless at the feet of Jesus. And I cry out, Lord, only in your mercy can I trust now. Would you save me? Would you help me? Because I cannot do this on my own. That is the purpose of the law. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. It was leading broken humanity to the place where they realized they could not do it without a Savior. This is why God sent Jesus. Because he realizes we couldn't do it. We needed a Savior. We need, needed somebody to help us. And the second thing that David does in your notes is that he, he doesn't just turn to God, but then he prays specifically for cleansing. In verse 2 he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in verse 7 he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What in the world does that mean, purge me with hyssop? In the Old Testament, whenever they had a house that was unclean, maybe there were lepers in there, which was sort of the living symbol of sin. The priest would go in and he would take hyssop and he would dip it in blood and he would cleanse the house by spreading this blood uh, uh, throughout the house and he would use hip hyssop. In other words, David is saying, I'm an unclean house and I need to be purged. And Lord, if you would take that hyssop, be my priest and apply that blood to my life because I need to be cleansed. And see, the good news is, is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In 1 John chapter 1, let's read some more scripture. Y'all love the Bible. I love that about you guys, by the way. Man, y'all love the Bible. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now notice this. If we walk in the light, what was David doing? He was trying to keep everything in the darkness. This is why it's important that even, even when I mess up, I'm gonna have so, I got somebody in my life that I'm going to go to and I'm going to say, here's what's going on in my life, man. Because I want to keep some things in the light. I want to keep that stuff in the light. I don't want to keep it in the darkness. But if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We're sharing our faults and our weaknesses. We're praying for one another. And as we do it, we're coming up under a continuous flow of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Next verse says, if we say that we don't have sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Amen. Next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, there's something about confession. And like I said, even in today's world, I've heard uh, several teachings that say, well, nowadays you don't have to confess your sin because you're already forgiven. Now, let me say this to you. You are already forgiven. You are. He has paid the price for your forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross, it was so much more powerful than your sin. This is why the scripture says where sin did abound, grace did much, much more abound. In other words, Jesus' death is at least a million times more powerful than your sin. His blood has the power to wash away every sin that you have ever committed so that God will not even remember it once again. And when we stand on judgment day, Christians who are washed in the blood won't be judged for their sins. They'll be judged according to their works because their sin has been washed in the blood and it's been put away. Somebody amen me. That's good news. But, it's still, but still he says... That there is confession involved. Now, let me, let me, I've talked to people and they say, well, yes, but Clay, don't you understand that people live under condemnation and they feel like they have to confess every sin. And I said, let me tell you something. When I mess up, I confess. And you know what it does for me? It helps me. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel clean because I'm bringing it to God. But I said, I don't live under condemnation. I know my sin is forgiven. And because I know my sin is forgiven, that's why I come and I confess it to my Lord. Because I know it's forgiven. 
And man, that just gives me, uh, that makes me rejoice even more because I get to come and I get to confess it to him. He says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. He'll cleanse you from all, all unrighteousness. There's an actual cleansing effect that takes place. But here's what I, I need you to understand. That confession of sin is paramount in repentance because one, it acknowledges that this right here that I'm doing is not good. This is not according to God's design. And it should not be in my life. And therefore, I'm acknowledging it. I'm labeling it. And, it's, and it is a catalyst to receive grace. And grace is not just that God covers your sin. It's that He gives you power to change. Always remember that. That grace does not just cover your sin and sweep it under the rug. But it washes your sin and gives you power to overcome that sin. Amen? So, we still ask. Now... When we, when we normalize sin, and that, that's the other thing that we're doing in our generation that, that, fears, that, that gives me a little bit of pause and scare, is that we're, we're beginning more and more to normalize sin. I read an article a couple of days ago where it says that 80% of evangelical Christians in the United States have premarital sex. Now, we're not talking about lost people that end up getting saved later in life. We're talking about kids that grow up in the church, claim to be Christians, have been baptized, and are participating in church. They're not yet married, but they are having sex with maybe one individual, maybe multiple individuals, 80%. And here's the thing. We say, well, the church is not reaching people because it's not relevant anymore. Let me make a statement to you, and let me say this. The church is not reaching people because it's not holy anymore. It's not got anything to do with whether or not we're relevant anymore. I mean, that's, that may be one aspect. You don't want to just get up and preach the tulip every Sunday or something like that. Three or four of you know what I'm talking about. We want to preach real-life issues, things that are, people are dealing with. But when we normalize sin, there's no real need for confession. There's no real need for repentance. All we're telling people is, look, just believe in Jesus and keep on doing what you're doing. Everything's going to be good. The Lord will cover your sin. You will not experience what Christ has for you. The Bible says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. The greatest day of my life, I'm, this is the third time I've said it, is when I finally repented of my sin and God empowered me to change. It was the best day of my life. It still remains to be the best day of my life. It wasn't even, the best day of my life was not even when I said Jesus saved me. Because when I said Jesus saved me, I still spent another year in absolute bondage trying to get out. You say, well, had you died clay, would you went to heaven? I don't know. All I know is I was still in bondage trying to seek God for freedom. Because it wasn't enough for me to say, Lord, save me and put faith in me. I needed to be free, folks. I needed to have that freedom in my life. I wanted to be clean from my sin. I didn't want to be every day trying to stop something and not be free from it. And I'm telling you right now, I believe with all of my heart there are people that believe now that, well, I just struggle with this and I'm always going to struggle with it. That's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that in Jesus Christ there is a power in the Spirit of God and there's a power in the blood of Jesus that sets people free and we've got to preach and proclaim that you can be free from your sin. I'm not saying that it's easy. Paul uses the language of death. He says you've got to put to death the deeds of the body. It takes some work. It takes some participating with the power of God. It takes some prayer and seeking God and humbling yourself and saying, God, I don't want to live this way. But in the process of humbling yourself and saying, God, help me. Please, God, I'm crying out for you to change me. Something happens on the inside and the Spirit of God grips your heart and transformation takes place. See, David's not just saying, 
Nathan, it's just a little sin. God cover that. No big deal. There's a brokenness in him. I remember how broken I was. Sometimes I worry about it because whenever I first got saved and the Lord con- he dealt with me, convicted me about my sin, I'd, I'd just be driving down the road and see a billboard and start weeping. You know what I mean? Because I was so tenderhearted, so broken from the condition that I was in. And I'm praying like David is. As I was reading this, I said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me where you brought me from. Help me to remember the days that I was in sin and I realized how far away I was from you. And you came in, you set me free. You changed my life. You started to do something in my life. See, in, 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 in the number three in your notes, it says that he confesses the seriousness of his sin. And David confesses at least five ways that his, that his sin is, is serious, that it's not to be overlooked. Verse 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Basically, he's saying, what I have done, and maybe some of you all, you've been in this situation. I remember when I was 10 years old, it was a short period of time after my parents had gotten divorced and I was kind of in a rebellious state. I was hurting a little bit. Some difficult things were going on in my life. And you know how it is. Sometimes when we're hurting, that's when we're the most vulnerable to make terrible decisions. And uh, I was 10 years old, though. And I, I remember I went with a guy and we vandalized the house. Broke into a house, vandalized it. What's the statute of limitations? I didn't even mean to confess that this morning. Am I good, Dad? It's been 22 years. Um, I also went to a convenience store with this young man, a couple of young men, and I, we stole some cigarettes from this convenience store. We did a good job of it, too. They didn't notice. We went into that house. We smoked some things, and I was 10 years old, and I can remember... Every day, every night, waking up through the day, my sin always before me. In my mind, emblazoned on my conscience. Man, God, give us a conscience like a 10-year-old boy once again. Where we're convicted over what we've done. I was sick for two weeks. I, I threw up one time thinking about it when I was 10 years old. That's how sick I was. And I remember finally I was just, I threw in the towel and I was driving down the road with my mom, and I finally said, I finally said, Mom, I got to tell you something. And I began to weep. And I told her every single thing that I did because I had to get it off of my chest. How is it that we're so hardened now? See, this is, I think, even kind of what Jesus says when he says you got to become like a little child. How is it that we're so hardened now that when we do something, we just try to cover it up and act like it's not even that big a deal? We don't even come to God and break before him. Because here's the thing. When you do come to him and you do break before him, I promise you, I know what he'll do. He'll wrap his arms around you and say, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to forgive you because I receive a broken heart. I receive a contrite spirit. That's what I'm looking for. This is what God's looking for in his people. And I'm telling you, folks, when the church finally is really willing. If we see people talk about revival in our nation and all of these things, but when the church really sees the glory of God once again, the holiness and the purity of God once again, and they finally decide to repent of their little sins, their sexual immorality, and forget trying to preach to the gays and the lesbians, we need to clear up our sexual immorality in the church. 80%? We got a plank in our own eyes and we're not going to be able to reach the church until we are purified or, or reach the world until the church is purified itself. It's on us. We're not going to see change until we see holiness. We can put up cooler lights on the back back here. 
I told these boys, I said, you know what, boys, we get these lights up, we'll see at least 10 more souls saved. A light has never saved anybody. I like nice stuff, but man, it's not about any of this stuff. It's, it's about the gospel of Jesus penetrating some hearts and doing something in somebody's life. It's not even about how, how well we look or how good our music sounds or anything like that. It's about people seeing the glory of God, the holiness of God, and turning to God in repentance. It's always been that. It's always been that. And somehow or another, repentance has become such a scary word that people don't want to talk about it anymore. We need to quit normalizing sin and start normalizing what the Bible said once again. Now people say, well, Brother Clay, you, we, there, there's, there's trigger words. I had a guy tell me that one time. You know, there's certain words in the Bible that are trigger words and it'll turn people off. If the Word of God turns people off, I don't know what to tell you. We're called to line up to the Word of God, not to try to get the Word of God to line up to our culture. Just because repentance or the blood of Jesus or something like that is a little bit uh, uh, bothersome to some people doesn't mean that it's still not true. The truth is what we've got to stand for. The truth is what we've got to preach. It's what we've got to, got to declare. In verse 4, and here's, here's the other thing that I want to say, is, you know, he said, my sin is always before me. Let me tell you something, that there, there really is truly a difference between being convicted of sin and then wallowing in guilt and condemnation. Because what I see is I, I minister, I talk to people, counsel with people. They've committed sexual sin and they've done something that is wrong. And my goal is not to get them to feel terrible about it. It's just get, to get them to, feel, to understand the reality of God's design for them. But what happens is, is that when people are Christians and they know they're struggling with sexual sin, man, what I've noticed is it's not that they're not convicted. It's that they are living and wallowing in guilt and condemnation most of the time. Now, there are some that are, are the opposite. But let me tell you this, it is a good thing to be convicted and have godly sorrow because the Bible says when I realize I've offended God, it actually leads me to repentance. And it pulls me back to God to say, God, forgive me. But when I feel that condemnation and it pushes me away from God, you may have slipped into condemnation. And that is Satan accusing you, saying God doesn't love you. God's got nothing good for you. You're filthy. You're worthless. You're no good. This is not God. This is the devil. Because God says, I still have purpose for you, and I know you've sinned, but guess what? My son went to the cross to die for that sin too. And you say, but Lord, I'm a Christian. I've been saved 10 years. He said, well, the same way that it saved you 10 years ago is the same way that it keeps you clean right here in the here and now. So turn back to me, forsake that sin, and I will wash you and restore joy to your life. Man, that's, the, that's what he's got for people. You don't have to wallow under the... It's a good thing to be convicted, but don't wallow in that condemnation. Verse 5, verse 4, let's read it. It says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now he's saying... You know, it's not, it's not that Uriah or, or Bathsheba or his children weren't hurt, but he's saying what makes sin sin is not that we do it to other people. It's that it's first and foremost against God's design. It is a direct attack against God. And the way, because you're basically saying, Lord, I've got a better way of doing things and I think I'm going to choose this instead of your path. And it's a direct attack against God. And David says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. This is an issue between you and I. I know it ended up hurting Bathsheba. I know it ended up hurting your eye, obviously. But this is an issue between my relationship with you. And I've, and I've sinned against you. And he says, you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, he's not justifying his sin. He's justifying God. He's saying, God, if you were to strike me dead right now and send me to hell, you'd be justified. 
How many people pray to God like that? God, if you were to judge me right now, you would be justified in doing so. He justifies God rather than justifying himself. And let me tell you something. We are masters at justifying our behavior, our attitude. We'll have the worst attitude in the world and we'll blame it on everybody else. Anybody amen me this morning? Verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, most of us will say, well, see, we were all born in sin. It's, 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 and this is absolutely true. There is not one person. Every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody on the planet has to turn to Jesus, come to Him in repentance, turn from their sin, and put faith in Christ. But see... He doesn't use it as an excuse. He's just acknowledging the fact that, Lord, if you look right down in the center of who I am, it is messed up. Can anybody amen me this morning? Even on my best day as a pastor, if I was to go prodding around in there quite a bit, there's some pretty nasty stuff in there. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm saying, he's pleading and saying, God, there's still some ugly junk on the inside of me. I was born in iniquity. And unless you do something in me, I cannot be a better person. I witness to people throughout the week that I just see in pass and I start talking to them about Jesus. And what I notice about every person that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, what they're so good at doing is saying, well, you know what? I try my best to be good to people. I say, I bet you do. Everybody that I can see for the most part, they try their best to be good to people. But ultimately, that's not what we're judged based on. Because at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try to be good to people, on the inside of us, we are corrupt and the image of God is marred in us. And only faith in Christ can change what's on the inside of us. We need to be born again. Jesus is the one that changes us. You can't change yourself. Jesus is the one who changes us. Verse 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. I think one of the biggest things is he's saying, God, you've given me wisdom before. You can give me wisdom again. But one of the things that scares me the most about David is he knows more than anybody about God at this time. You know what I'm talking about? All of us, most of us in here, we know a lot about God. But how is it that we can know so much but still step into such grievous sin sometimes? He's saying, God, in this kind of light that I'm living in, how is it that I can still be in such a condition? Let me give you the last thing and I'm going I'm to finish up. Number four, he pleads for renewal. He pleads for renewal. And just like I've said this entire message, David doesn't just want forgiveness so he can continue in sin. He wants renewal. He wants to be transformed. And truly forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. When I'm forgiven of a sin and when I, when I realize the love of God toward me and the mercy of God toward me and washing my sin away and cleansing me of my sin, when I realize that, then all of a sudden something began to happen and I wanted so much to be changed. And see, the murderer, the, the sexually immoral, the liar, the thief, at the end of the day, what matters is not that they did those things. What matters is whether or not they put their faith in Christ. And somebody who has truly been forgiven of those things, you know what happens? They hate what they do. You ever get to the point where you all of a sudden, you begin to hate the things that you once loved? That's what God does in us. Let's read through some of these verses right quick. Verse 8, it says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. I read one commentator on this, and I don't know if it's true or not, 
It may be, it may not. But one commentator said that what he's saying is, is he understood David once was a shepherd. And he said, when a sheep would go astray and the shepherd knew that this sheep is ultimate, he's going to get killed because he won't stay close enough. I don't know if this is true. Sounded a little bit far-fetched, but what do I know? You know what I'm saying? He said the shepherd would go to that little sheep and break its legs. And so it couldn't walk. And then the shepherd would pick it up and nurture it and nurse it back to health. And after it nursed it and nurtured it back to health, the sheep would remember. And from then on, never again would that sheep leave the side of its shepherd. In other words, David is saying, the bones that you've broken, I see that you've broken these bones, but you've nurtured me back to restoration. And he said, now I can rejoice because of what you're doing in my life. And in verse, let's look at verse 10. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Jesus gives us a new heart. We are born again by the Spirit of God. He puts a new heart in us. But he says, renew a steadfast spirit. He's saying, God, give me a spirit that is not just vacillating all the time, double-minded, going back and forth with struggling with this. But give me a spirit that says, I'm laying this thing down and I'm committed to forsaking it and I'm going to draw on your grace every day until you are changing my life and changing my mentality and changing who I am. Give me a steadfast spirit. In verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, he had already seen Saul, his king, before him. He lost the anointing of God that was upon his life. Now, Jesus told us that when he gave us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. He would never leave us nor forsake us. But I can promise you this. You know as well as I do that when we begin to slip in our behavior, when we begin to slip in our relationship with God, when sin enters in, we sense this distance from the presence of God. We sense that this Spirit... And he's saying, God, confirm me. I want to be in your presence one of the reasons I want to stay holy is because every time I meet in this room, I want, to, I want to sense God's presence. I don't want to have to feel the guilt and the shame of what I'm carrying. And I believe the blood of Jesus is able to wash that. But man, we, we, he's saying, I want to walk in right relationship with you in these things. He says, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Notice in this psalm, I counsel a lot of guys that they struggle with sexual sin. They, 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 they deal with these things. But notice David not once, he does not mention sex one time. In it. He doesn't say, Lord, give me some guys to hold me accountable. Lord, help me to keep my thoughts pure. He doesn't say any of that th stuff because he realizes that sexual immorality is the symptom and not the disease. Somebody amen me. It's the symptom and not the disease. People end up falling into sinful habits and behaviors not because they're do, not doing a good job of resisting it. They end up falling into sinful habits and behaviors because their relationship with God is somehow defective and God is not taking the primary place of joy and love in their hearts. When God is my central focus and my joy comes from worshiping Him and being in His presence, when I wake up in the morning and God is in my mind and, all of, and, and throughout the day He's in my mind, that sin doesn't have a place to creep in. But it's when my relationship with Him is gone, when I've lost the joy of my salvation and my relationship with God and I'm walking around by myself that sin creeps in. And I'm trying hard to not sin, but I, just, but I forgot that the power over sin is not that I can overcome it. It's that I've got a relationship with the one who is powerful enough to destroy it in my life. And so he's saying, don't, I don't need any of these other things. I need my relationship with you, God, restored. And notice verse 13. 
He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. In other words, he's saying, I want this to, I want you to so change my life that I can lead people who have struggled the same way that I have out of that same sin and back to you. He says, I want it to become effective evangelism. I want it to change people's lives. You know, again, Nathan had told him, he said, you know, you damaged your witness, David. You've given people an opportunity to blaspheme God because of your behavior. And that's another thing. We live in a generation now where Christians think that, you know what? I believe I'll just cuss a little bit. That way people will know that that I'm real and maybe I can win them to Jesus a little bit easier. Again, being like the world is not going to win people to Jesus. It might make people like you more but it ain't going to win them to Jesus. What wins people to Jesus is the holiness and purity that comes from having a relationship with God where they realize this dude's not perfect, but there's something different about him. And I bet God's in that guy because he's different. Like he don't talk like other people. He don't live like other people. He, he, he's choosing purity when everybody else in high school is going ballistic. Like something's, something's happening. And, and, and that's, that's what's going to change people. He's saying, he's saying, I want to lead people that they'll be converted to you, Lord. Let me read this last verse. Verse 16 and 17. He says, For you did not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And let me tell you something. God is, not, God is all about joy, matter of fact. He wants you to have joy inexpressible and full of glory but do you know that the path to joy in the Christian life is a broken heart and a contrite spirit it's realizing finally that Lord without you I'm not going to make it and here I bring my brokenness to you I know I'm not perfect but I thank you Lord that your blood cleanses me from all of my sin and from all of my unrighteousness only you can make me pure only you can make me clean only you can give me the power to change Lord and so I come to you broken because I say I've got got nothing Lord I'm bankrupt without you and that's the position of the Christian life you never get to a place either you know after you've been a Christian 10, 20 years you start you win some victories you never get to the place where you say man I'm holy now we've got it figured out boys we've got it lined up You'll never get there. You go deeper into brokenness, deeper into an awareness of that brokenness, and you become more and more repentant, turning to God every day. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and Lord, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He's saying daily, Lord, forgive me these trespasses. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet just for a minute. Just close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment. I just want to give everybody an opportunity to respond. But the first thing is, is, is just the issue of salvation. If you're, if you're here this morning and you need to begin that relationship with God. And here's the thing. I know that, that, that perhaps you said, well, I believe in Jesus. But see, I believe that there are so many Christians that they do believe in Jesus, just like I did when I was a young man. But for some reason or other, they're unwilling to turn from the sin that God is highlighting in their lives. And that's what God's calling you to this morning. He's saying, there's a better way. The death that I died for you on the cross 
was not for you to just be forgiven, but it's for you to be transformed. And you respond by saying, Lord, I'm turning to you. I'm giving this sin to you. I'm allowing you to change my life. And if that's you, and this morning you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to turn. Won't you just lift your hand right now just as a declaration of that? Saying, I want to turn my life to Jesus. I won't give it to him. Anybody in here? All right. All right. Now I want to pray for the rest of you. And I just want you to, to ask the Lord. Say, Lord, I want this. I want a broken heart. I want a contrite spirit. I want to be able to come before you. So, Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would move in all of our hearts. God, there's not a one of us, Lord, that doesn't struggle, that doesn't deal with certain things in our life, whether it be our attitude. Maybe it is, Lord God, some kind of, of sexual temptation that we're struggling with. Maybe it's, 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 it's the fact that we just that we, we're negative all the time and we speak evil of others. It could be so many different things, Lord, that we deal with. But God, we confess those to you right now. And your word says, God, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray, God, that your blood would just bring a fresh cleansing over your people. But God, as we, as we confess and we lift these things up to you, Lord, I'm praying for healing. I'm praying for restoration and renewal. Lord, that you would restore to each person the joy of their salvation, God. That you would remind them where you brought them from, God. And I pray that this morning, Lord, where people stand, that sins that are affecting their life, that they would just be broken off right now in Jesus' name. That you would just minister to them and break those bondages and those chains off of their life and bring transformation in their life. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we honor you, we lift you up in this place this morning. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move in every heart. God, the same way that Nathan the prophet came and in love responded to David in a way that would bring him back to God, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd do that in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the discernment and the wisdom to love our brothers and sisters, to talk to them, to hold each other accountable so that we can pursue holiness and purity because, God, we want to live differently than this world. We want to live in purity. We want to live in holiness. And so we pray that you would do that in us, God. We thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.